This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's Cybersecurity Certification Group has its first assessor. The CMMC board says Redspin can do inspections for contractors that have to meet contract requirements for security. FedScoop reports the company qualified after months of training, assessments, and oversight from the department and the CMMC board. The Army's targeting 2025 to build the network it needs to tap into the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System. The acting director of the Army's network cross-functional team, Colonel Rob Ryan, says by 2025, the Army will take JADC2 from, quote, concept to reality. Defense News reports the Army calls the set of tools it's building Capability Set 25. The Office of Management and Budget needs a 14% budget increase to build back its career workforce, according to Acting Director Shalonda Young. She says the new staff will work on responsibilities OMB's taken on in recent years. FCW reports some OMB office staffing levels today are 30% below 2012 staffing levels. Officials at the Department of Veterans Affairs say they have no evidence of data loss after the solar winds hack. President Biden signed an executive order last month to boost U.S. cyber defenses after high-level ransomware attacks. Gary Stevens is executive director for information security policy and strategy at the VA. Gary, welcome back. It's good to see you again. I ask nice this as an home. existential question, not to pick on VA. How does an organization, any organization, know definitively that it hasn't been subject to any particular cyber attack? Well, I would say, Francis, how we do that is by leveraging the capabilities that we have that are used to both monitor and understand the status of the environment within the uh, an environment as complicated as the VA. So we have enhanced monitoring that monitors both east-west connections, north-south connections. We work in tandem with our partners at DHS and within the IC as well to um, get in front of those potential uh, indicators of compromise, monitor for them, and then if, if detected, respond appropriately. And as it relates to the solar winds, uh, to date, we've noticed we have no indicators of compromise associated with that solar winds compromise. And we continue to work in tandem with our partners at uh, DHS, CISA specifically, to uh, continue to monitor those events and ensure that we have as robust capabilities as possible. This is an indicator, isn't it, of the importance of architecture? I've probably heard IT architecture more over the last year than I heard it in the past, in the five years before that. It was a big thing, I want to say 10, 12 years ago in government IT, disappeared. It's back now, isn't it, Gary? It absolutely is. In fact, uh, we are leveraging both the uh, recent uh, executive order to look holistically across what we do uh, from an architecture standpoint, specific in that instance relative to the EO on uh, uh, zero trust architectures, but also there were um, robust efforts already underway relative to how we bring forward services and capabilities through the cloud, as well as just how we enhance our overall cybersecurity capability, again, as an integrated um, uh, partnership with our uh, brethren over on the operations side, as well as within the business lines. It's really been crucial through those efforts to make sure that we get in front of 
what we need to do from a cybersecurity standpoint. And we do that by integrating with our mission partners, the business requirement, uh, engaging in that dialogue and making sure that cybersecurity is there um, where it needs to be and that it does what it needs to do at the appropriate time to enable the business uh, uh, requirement. When the EO came out, Gary, how did you read it to determine what you needed to do operationally? It's, there's some important philosophical things in there, but you and your peers at other agencies, I imagine, saw marching orders in there too. Absolutely, we did. Um, well, I would say just the EO itself helped propel a lot of the things that we were already uh, engaged in. We've been teaming with our, uh, part, with our partners on the operations side to realize the envision concept of the DevSecOps model already, also with COVID and the enhanced capabilities that we were already pursuing um, and, and the fact that COVID propelled many of those things, we've been able to leverage those as it relates to the EO. But I would say the EO is a game changer. It really brings forward the concept that cybersecurity needs to have a seat at the table. It's part of the decision-making process. And relative to that, we've engaged our um, counterparts uh, both on the business side as well as internally identified specific SES leads who were, are working the various sections within that within the EO to make sure that they are um, working those tasks, ensuring that we get OMB the appropriate guidance that they need and that they require consistent with the EO, and then also engaging with them to make sure that we can understand the requirements uh, sooner um, and that we can uh, take the appropriate actions accordingly. But there were a lot of things already underway in the department that were designed to really bring forward the cybersecurity requirement and uh, make sure that it had that seat at the table so it was part of the decision-making process. That collaboration that you're describing between your organization and the business owners in the various parts of VA, how are you driving that further down the chain? It's important, obviously, at your level, but it's also important, I imagine, two, three, four, all the way down uh, throughout the all of these organizations, right? Absolutely. Well, I would say that it starts with the secretary and the secretary is, as he stated in, in his hearing, and as we've engaged him since, is 100% behind um, the requirement to bring cybersecurity to the forefront of the discussion. And that has transcended across the board at every leadership tier, both at the upper echelons as well as at the lower tiers as well. So we've really benefited from that. And it has really allowed us to have a, a unique collaborative uh, engagement um, in how we look at and, and bring services to the veteran. And through those partnerships that have really been strengthened through COVID, but were also there before COVID, uh, we've been really um, able to uh, bring forward uh, the requirement set and make sure that cybersecurity is being discussed and that we um, have that seat at the table. And, but more importantly, that we make cybersecurity enable the mission. There are a number of deadlines in the executive order, Gary. I imagine the fact that you were working on some of these issues before it came out, you had a leg up, gives you an advantage in meeting those deadlines. Absolutely, absolutely. And then with those deadlines that we do have on the horizon, obviously we are laser focused on ensuring that we deliver consistent with those deadlines. Again, we have uh, weekly sessions that we are, that uh, where SES level engagement is, uh, is a part of that process and that we have teams working behind the scenes to make sure that we're able to deliver consistent with those uh, guidelines and parameters, and that we're doing it in a collaborative and organized way, right? Where we have the time through the delivery schedule to make sure that what we're putting forward is exactly consistent with what we need to do um, uh, going forward um, on the time horizon. 
Gary Stevens of the VA, thanks very much for joining me again. It's great to see you. It's wonderful to see you as well, and thank you so much. Coming next, the existential threat the Defense Department can't do anything about. Straight ahead on Government Matters, potential tools for the Pentagon to try to deal with climate change. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin calls climate change an existential threat to United States national security. Austin named four incidents in recent years that climate change has driven that have impacted the department. Jim Miter is chief strategy officer at Govini. He's former principal director for strategy and force development in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Govini's publishing its 2021 climate, environment, and energy taxonomy for the Defense Department. Jim, welcome. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. These events that uh, Secretary Austin alluded to, you and your team also allude to, for the Defense Department in particular, implications arising from how climate change is shaping the geopolitical security environment as a driver of conflict and instability. Is that conflict and instability limited to other parts of the world, or do some of the events that Secretary Austin talked about also bring that inside our own borders, uh, hurricanes, fires, and so on? Yeah, well, first off, good morning, Francis, and many thanks for having me. I think that's exactly right. The Department of Defense has called on for a range of different missions, and one of those missions includes uh, defense support civil authorities here at home. So when there are wildfire events, you know, earthquakes, things of that nature, um, uh, uh, bad storms, uh, we've seen in the past the military is called in to support overwhelmed civil authorities. And it's exactly that type of event that we could see more of in the future based on trends that are happening with the climate. And so the Department of Defense wants to ensure that it is, has the right capabilities and the, the right uh, operational concepts to be able to support more in that capacity. So it is a global issue to be sure, and instability and uh, dynamics happen overseas, but it is one that can affect us back at home as well. Speaking of trends, what are the trends that you see as you examine these issues uh, in this taxonomy, Jim? So there's a range of different trends that came out. Now, uh, just by brief background, what we did is we looked at all the U.S. government spending in climate, environment, and energy from FY 2012 through FY 20, in part because we wanted to get a sense of over the end of the Obama administration and with the Trump administration, how much they're actually investing in this space. So we would know as the Biden-Harris administration comes in, what's the foundation upon which they're working from. And one of the trends that really jumped out at us, it's quite surprising, is that the Trump administration actually increased investment in this portfolio uh, during its time. Now, surprising because, you know, quite frankly, this is no secret, the Trump administration wasn't prioritizing climate in the same way the Obama administration was. Uh, there was efforts to unwind many of the Obama administration's policies and regulations in this space. And so we expected to see the same thing in terms of federal government investment, and we didn't. And that's likely for a variety of reasons. Part of it could be inertia in terms of what the uh, programs were already underway and getting going during the Obama administration. Uh, part of it is Congress played a role here using the power of the purse. But in many ways, uh, why it, it got an uptick is that if you look at it program by program, many of the investments are just prudent uh, and, and necessary for the government to execute its mission. 
One of the things that I've learned over the past five years in particular, uh, Jim, that may be a factor there is that every uniform leader that I talk to, who obviously are, are uh, there to provide apolitical input to civilian leaders, talks very clearly and very explicitly about the implications of climate change on his or her portfolio, not making decisions about or, or, or making declarations about what they think about it from a, a policy or, or philosophical level, but just what they're seeing on the ground. And I wonder if that might be part of what's driving this, too. It's just the uniform leader saying, you guys can debate whether it's real or not or how bad it is or what's causing it, but this is what we're seeing on the ground, in the air. This is what we need. I wonder if that's part of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a couple of different ways in which it affects the Department of Defense. You mentioned already how uh, extreme weather events and changing climate can create stability, and that can lead to conflict in certain areas of the world uh, or, or to natural disasters that we need to respond to back here at home. But the warming of the uh, of the earth is is opening up new uh, sea passages and uh, lanes in the Arctic. Uh, Russia has not been shy about asserting its presence there, and so that's a, an important area for the department to focus on. Um, and then specifically in terms of military installations, uh, many of them exist in areas that are at risk from flooding and from you know uh, extreme weather events as well, and that can hamper the Department of Defense's ability to operate. Uh, and then. The, the reality is that most of America's military is based here in the United States, and yet most of the missions it's called upon to do are overseas. And so this effort to project power globally and sustain it, especially in austere environments where there isn't a lot of infrastructure, comes with a huge logistics tail to ensure that those forces have the energy that they need. And so it's just prudent for the department to make investments in things like wind and solar and energy uh, capture and storage and distribution technologies that will be more cost efficient and allow the department to be a little bit more agile as it maintains its presence overseas. There's tons of stuff in this, and I wish we had time to talk about more of what you have in here, Jim. Uh, 30 seconds left. What do you want people to take away from this taxonomy? What do you want people to do with it? Well, if you look just at the Department of Defense, what it invests in this space, it's quite wide ranging. Everything from satellites to sea batteries to smart buildings. And what we were able to do is apply some machine learning techniques to help organize the range of investments there into a coherent whole and to think about it as an effective portfolio. And so if you really want to understand what DOD is doing in the space and figure out how to manage it, then this is a good place to start. Jim, congratulations on this work and thanks very much for joining me to talk about it. Many thanks. You can find a link to that work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, the ransomware mystery for the federal government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, has the government escaped getting hit or has it escaped getting caught? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The public sector and the private sector can't agree on banning ransomware payments. The Justice Department has elevated ransomware investigations to the same priority level as terrorism. Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, U.S. Air Force, retired as director of the CERT Division at the Software Engineering Institute. He's former federal chief information security officer. Greg, it's great to see you again. I, I am struck as we have these conversations about ransomware that I kind of pay attention to this stuff. I'm not aware of any ransomware attacks that have been publicized against the federal government. 
Is the federal government doing something that state and local governments aren't doing? Is it better at something than those organizations? Or is there something else going on here, do you think? I think it's a combination of all of those things, to be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, the, the ransomware folks have now created a billion dollar industry uh, with ransomware uh, being put across the whole globe. It's not just in the United States, it's a global issue. But they're going like Willie Sutton, you know, where he would rob the banks when they asked, you know, why do you rob banks? He said, well, because that's where the money is. So they're going where the money is. And the federal government is not going to pay ransom. They've already, you know, we've already seen that as a policy. Secondly, the federal government has done some really good things to harden themselves against ransomware, such as what we saw when um, the federal government instituted DKIM, D-K-I-M, uh, across the federal government to reduce the uh, impact of type of emails, the phishing that would come in, uh, which is the primary delivery source for ransomware, the federal government's put in some technical controls that's reduced that risk exposure. And then uh, third is, is, you know, the, the bad guys recognize, hey, you know, even if I do hit a federal agency, I'm not going to be able to really collect. So uh, I'm going to go after less hardened targets and uh, ones that are more likely to pay. That strikes me then as an argument, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it strikes me as an argument for banning ransomware payments in the United States. That's one side of it. The other side of it is, I guess, what we've seen where the Justice Department recovered a tremendous portion, if not the entire amount, that Colonial Pipeline paid to the people that uh, had locked its systems up. Does it matter whether we ban or don't ban ransomware payments, or is the policy that the federal government's taken, which is we're just not going to do it, the best way to approach it, do you think, and let it, each organization decide on its own? Well, I don't think it's very practical for the government to say, hey, you're not going to be permitted to make a payment. If you're a chief executive officer of a company and you've now gone into gridlock on your business because you've fallen victim to ransomware, um, there, there's a very strong business incentive for companies out there to say, you know, I'm going to take a look at this from a risk-based decision. And if the risk tells me that I got to pay this in order to get back uh, and operating, I'm going to pay that bill. I don't care what the, the you know department of whatever says. So I, I think, you know, as we take a look at risk to businesses, we really want to be careful about the government uh, not putting their fingers into the risk management decisions of America's businesses. But on the same token, business leaders everywhere are paying more and more attention to this risk and saying, hey, IT team, uh, cybersecurity team, uh, how do I reduce my risk for a, a ransomware attack? And then as you take a look at what the costs to buy down that risk are versus what those potential ransoms are, I think that's really going to drive a whole lot. I think the government's role is to interdict these folks. Uh, these are a very small number of gangs. They're an ad hoc, uh, but very well organized uh, groupings. That's really where law enforcement uh, organizations uh, across the United States and across the world need to collaborate to identify and hunt these folks uh, down and hopefully prevent them from moving forward. And I'm, I'm loving the fact that the FBI was able to go in and recoup at least 
some portions of some of the ransoms that have been paid. Um, the, the issue with uh, ransomware that I have found fascinating uh, in the time that we've learned about it, Greg, is that the bad guys that are doing this are bad guys. Why, if, if they'll lock your system up, why do we trust them that they'll definitely give you the keys back when you give them the money? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a great question. But uh, th these folks, at the end of the day, are criminal business people. And uh, what's to prevent them from coming back later and hitting you again if you haven't secured your infrastructure after you paid the first ransom? So they want to... You know, they want to have a business model where if, in fact, you do pay the ransom, your stuff's going to get unlocked because the moment that you take a ransom, but you don't unlock your whole business model falls apart uh, because where it's going to get around that, hey, I paid a ransom, but I didn't get the key to unlock. You know, who else is going to pay a ransom after that? So it's all part of their business model. But these folks are very predatory. They are scanning the internet. They're looking for key indicators that folks do not practice proper cyber hygiene. And they're looking for the folks that, you know, don't have DKIM, for example, on their email services. Virtually the uh, cyber kick me signs that you and I have previously, uh, previously talked about, you know, things that they can scan uh, around the world and see, okay, these folks don't have a very good security posture. I'm going to target them. And then once they find a potential target, then they're going to harvest like social media credentials, LinkedIn and some other things. So they can actually send targeted spear phishing emails to deliver the payloads. And it's a, it's a very potent uh, business model for them right now. There is such a thing as honor among thieves, I suppose. Greg Tuhill, thanks very much. It's great to have you back. Thanks, Francis. Appreciate you. The Space Force Spotlight is coming to Government Matters later this month. It's sponsored by Shaniga. Space Force leaders will outline their initiatives and the work they're doing with DOD partners and industry to meet the force's mission. Space Force Spotlight debuts June 24th. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? 
it's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20 year old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract. GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.